We're roughly two weeks from pitchers and catchers reporting, and we already have Joe Kelly beef, or is it chicken? We'll let you decide on episode eight of Stone Cold Strohs. It starts right now. Welcome into Stone Cold Strohs. I'm Brandon Strange. I'm joined by SportsMap.com's editor, Josh Jordan. You can follow him on Twitter at JoshJordan975 and SportsMap Houston senior content contributor, Charlie Palolo. You can follow him at Palolo and read him weekly on SportsMap.com. Charlie, Josh, welcome in. Welcome. You mentioned roughly two weeks to pitchers and catchers starting to stretch it out in Florida, and the Astros case in Florida. Two months to the day. The Astros and the White Sox in the season opener at Minute Maid Park. And I guess we'll touch upon a potential early subplot. For our live audience that's uh, making their way in right now, I appreciate your patience as we got the show started up. Uh, If you're catching us for the first time, we do this live at 3 p.m.-ish on YouTube every Monday. And then the audio version goes up Monday evenings. So if you prefer listening, uh, we, we are on all the major audio platforms. So please give us a sub on any of those platforms. And while you're there, give us a five-star rating. If you feel so inclined, we appreciate it. Be sure to follow uh, our parent channel, Sports Map Houston, on all your favorite social platforms as well, like Facebook, Facebook, not Facebook. What's a Facebook? Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and of course, right here on YouTube. So we do appreciate your engagement. Make sure you're commenting. We're going to feature some of those comments as we go along. And uh, we teased it in the in the open. Let's get right to it. Protagonist of his very own new book, pitcher Joe Kelly, says that had the Astros advanced to the World Series in 2020, he was so totally ready to confront them at the team hotel. He spoke with AM570 uh, in LA about this, and this really reads uh, like a bad Kenny Powers fan fiction. He says, 100% I would have. Uh, my wife knows that. She could vouch for me. We had twins at the time, and she said, okay, you could do what you want. Man, I can't even read these quotes without doing a bad Kenny Powers impression. So what are your thoughts on this? I mean, we can go any number of ways on this, but this sounds really weak sauce. Well, my thoughts are a little bit hazy at the moment. Wait, that's just my computer lag. As you mentioned, he's hawking a book. So you want to put juicy, salacious, sellable, book me on talk show type elements to it. Uh, What better role model for young twins than daddy saying he wanted to go start a Pier 6 brawl at the team hotel? Even Even if the picture was perfectly clear. I'm not sure you guys could make this out. Can, can you see that? <laughs> and if you're going with just audio, play along, theater of the imagination. That's the thread that Joe Kelly's career is dangling by. Off a season in which he threw 37 innings to a 6.08 earned run average. So tall tales or short tales of what he would have or would not have done in 2020 are worth about as much as what comes out of his right arm right now. Very, very little. Yeah, I agree. Is this guy just going to go away ever? I'm so tired of hearing about this. And we always get these crazy things from these books when they're teasing them. For Joe Buck, it was all about his hair plugs. For Joe Kelly, it's about punching Astros in the face in the lobby of a hotel. If they were to meet in the World Series in 2020, which didn't happen, I think that all that would have happened is Carlos Correa would have punched him in the face, and that would have been about the end of that. So, I mean, he's one of the most hated guys by the fan base, and 
who doesn't get extra run bringing up the Astros and going back to the scandal over and over and over again? It works for every reporter, especially the national guys. Why wouldn't it work for Joe Kelly? He'll probably sell a lot of books to to Dodger fan, maybe even Yankee fan out of this. So business-wise, maybe not the, the dumbest idea. Not coincidentally, Joe Kelly referred to Dodger fans as the best fan base in the Ooh. world or all <laughs> in kind or something along those lines. Uh, look, if he wants to continue to pump up the pseudo-tough guy persona, if he makes the White Sox this season, well, he'll be at Minute Maid Park. And I know the Astros is not the NFL where the team convenes at a hotel and stays there the night before a game. But the Astros won't be hard to find, Joe. Of course, how many of them are left going all the way back to 2017 or even 2020? Uh, so uh, this too shall pass. Much ado about nothing. Pick your bromide. It applies where Joe Kelly is concerned. Uh, good thing, though, that he didn't take a, a shot to the face from Correa because Carlos might have broken a knuckle. Well, they weren't too hard to find now. They weren't too hard to find then. He's a millionaire with the means to go chase them down anywhere If should he feel so inclined about it. I don't know why he's letting uh, the fact that the Astros didn't make the World Series deter him from doing something that he's clearly so motivated about. And had, had they only just made the world series and everyone would have had to hold Joe Kelly back. And he says, even MLB knew it because they went to his wife behind his back and told her to try to get to dissuade him from doing that. And she said, not even I can control him. So I'm paraphrasing there a little bit, but it's that, that is the gist of it that he tells uh five seventy in LA. So that is, I mean, you really can't make this stuff up. He got us thinking, we were talking about this in the pre-show. He's on that Mount Rushmore, I guess, of Astros, maybe villain assigns him a little bit too much credit. Who are some of our favorite uh, Astros antagonists? Because they've it's got to be numering, you know, in the dozens at this point. Well, I guess how you want to uh, attack it, right? Joe Kelly made it personal. It, it became personal and all that stuff. Uh, so there's the, we hate that guy, but really it's because we're envious. Uh, Albert Pujols booed for 15 years, but there was no reason to have personal animus toward Albert Pujols other than he hit a home run falling out of bed uh, every time he showed up at Minute Maid Park. Jim Edmonds on many of those Cardinals teams, similarly. Uh, so where it was a visceral, I'd like to punch that guy in the face sentiment from Astros fans, no one Tops Joe Kelly, at least of recent vintage for me. Tommy Lasorda, if we go back a couple of generations of Astros fans, I think uh, Tommy Two-Face was uh, despised. But even then, he was just kind of the blowhard manager of the Dodgers who were usually better than the Astros and all that. Whereas Joe Kelly, I get the sense, and maybe it's just an angrier world now, social media and all that. But either you guys have someone you're thinking, oh, if we could put a guy in a dunk tank, (laughs) <laughs> and have him wear cement shoes while he's in there. Joe Kelly's number one. Anyone top him? How about Mike Fires? Could I throw him out there? Well, yeah, we have a winner. Yeah, <laughs> win. And, uh, maybe honorable mention John Boy. Uh, he's the reason that that video got cut with Altuve crossing home plate, not wanting his jersey ripped off to cut. He's running directly to the dugout when it was really like two minutes of him running around celebrating with his teammates. And then that's what launched all the buzzer garbage that we still hear about. So I'll go with Mike Fires and John Boy. John Boy's come around a little bit because he just can't deny the Astros winning. But uh, yeah, Fires and John Boy are up there for me. 
I'm not going to be able to beat that. I mean, because obviously fires is the ultimate uh, heel when it comes to the Astros existence. I'm going to name a couple of guys you didn't name, which was Trevor Bauer and Ryan Tapera, a couple of pitchers who've had some interesting things to say. And granted, these guys are just honorable mention. I, I can't top fires, but I just, I do find it interesting. And, and look, you're going to make a lot of enemies when you do a lot of winning. The Astros lists of uh, children are becoming Nick Cannon-esque. And I was told I could say that part of that winning is because the Ashers have uh, some great decision makers. The great decision makers have made another seemingly great decision. And we haven't spoken about this on this podcast yet. We will do that now. Welcome to H-Town, Dana Brown. Indeed, the Astros announced Dana Brown. We've talked about Dana on this show. We were talking about candidates, how excited we were for a guy who's been a proven scout in the Nationals and now helping build a massive roster for the Braves. Charlie, give us give us your thoughts. Like, What are you really feeling about Dana Brown being announced as the Astros GM? Well, going back to when the purported shortlist was uh, initially named, Dana Brown was obviously the best fit for the Astros, the most credentialed for the the job needs at this point in the franchise's existence in terms of wheeling and dealing and trading. Of course, there are moves around the margins, and you never know how the season unfolds. And in July, maybe Dana Brown will have some very heavy lefting to do. But as you look for the next generation of Astros talent bridging from the Bregman, Altuve, remaining core guys, uh, Jordan, young guy, Kyle Tucker, young guy, Jeremy Pena, young guy, number of pitchers young and under control, uh, but still, nothing lasts forever. The Astros are not going to run roughshod over the American League West forever unless their farm system gets back to producing more talent. It's not a problem. It's not a failure of the farm system. Everything that they've generated the last six, eight years has largely resulted in the dynasty they're in the midst of now. You're picking low every round, every year. The loss of two first and second round picks over two years from the, the cheating penalty so it's not as if they've withered on the vine, but their minor league system's not good enough. It's clearly in the bottom third among the major league teams. Uh, the consensus and pro prospect rankings are rankings of prospects. Many of them aren't going to amount to anything. The most hyped Astros prospect in the last five years is Forrest Whitley, who's a big fat zero at this point. Right? He was in the top 50, the top 20 of some of these lists two, three, four years ago, and it hadn't worked out at all. But that Hunter Brown is the only Astros prospect at this point defined as someone who'd be eligible to win Rookie of the Year in the Major Leagues in 2023. He's the only prospect in the top 100 uh, across the 30 Major League organizations. There is work to do, and Dana Brown has done spectacular work. It's not like he was responsible for every pick and selection the Braves have made in recent years, but that has been a minor league talent pipeline for several years homegrown talent development of pitchers as well as everyday players the win horse and the place horse for national league rookie of the year just last season and you can predate that to time in toronto under alex anthopoulos who then followed to atlanta uh, you want to go back earlier than that uh, not as important a role but the expos then nationals it's just a tremendous resume if you're going to hire someone who hadn't done it yet as a general manager i think it was last week mentioned the old saw how do you get experience so someone gives you the experience as a general manager, it's a slam dunk hire. Now, could Dana Brown flop for whatever reason? Sure. I don't think it's a smart bet that he will. Uh, but the one other guy I wanted to mention specifically, uh, Brad Osmus, whether the actual runner-up or just floated as the runner-up, maybe Brad Osmus would have killed it. But if Brad Osmus had gotten the job, it would have been in large part because he was teammate besties of Jeff Bagwell. 
And as I noted in a column the other day, many, many hires, many walks of life to get started. Well, it's often who you know and not what you know. And Brad Osmus, forget Dartmouth educated, baseball educated, brilliant thinking man's catcher for years and years and years. But a very thin resume to qualify him to become the general manager of a major league team. So here, here to the hire of Dana Brown, who raises the tally of current major league general managers who are African-American to one. Uh, Ken Williams is executive vice president overseeing all baseball operations with the Chicago White Sox. So while certainly it wasn't a driving force and should not have been a driving factor in Jim Crane making the individual decision for the Astros, this is a great hire for Major League Baseball also. No, I agree. And we had a lot of conversations about David Stearns, that the Astros could wait a year until his contract was up with the Brewers. And, you know, maybe they just let Bagwell kind of run things. Apparently that's not the case. Crane said he hadn't even reached out about Stearns at the Houston Sports Awards the other night. So Dana Brown looked like the guy outside of Osmus. And and Osmus was kind of late to the party as far as us as media members finding out that he was even an option. So that one was pretty interesting. But, you know, Charlie talked about the, the experience. That's what we wanted to see from Dana Brown. He was my top candidate. That's who I wanted for the job, all the scouting all that stuff. I thought it was interesting when they talked to him. They said, you know, who did you speak with when you were interviewing with the job, talking to people? And he said he talked to Bagwell and Reggie Jackson, that he didn't speak to any of the front office people, none of the assistant GMs, nobody else really, and obviously Crane, who he interviewed with. So I thought that was interesting that we're not going to have you talk to anybody else. You're just going to talk to Bagwell, Reggie Jackson, and Jim Crane. I wonder if that becomes like the buffer where Dana Brown is meeting with Bagwell and talking with Reggie Jackson and, and then Crane is the ultimate end in be all as far as how decisions get made, especially on big, big contracts. I'm sure Dana will handle, handle the uh, everyday stuff just fine. But I, I found that curious that that seems to be the brain trust, the pecking order. Those are the guys that Jim Crane trusts. And then obviously he knew from his experience with Bagwell or not Bagwell, but Vigio with Dana Brown, he had talked to Craig about his experiences with him and, and Craig was a big fan. So so there you go. That That's who Crane listens to. It, not like we didn't know, but nice to have a little more confirmation. I think what's what's interesting is this guy is walking into a situation in which the team's built. So there's not an expectation that he needs to take the team to the next level. He's not looking to take a step with this organization. He's looking to keep this window open. Long-term sustained winning were the, was the four words that he used as his goal for this team. You know, you talked about the interview process, Josh. I took from that as well that how involved Crane was because he said this was the first time that he's ever gotten to speak to an owner in any of these processes. He would have been a gym candidate for the, the Mets in the past as well. And he said this is the first time he's ever been in front of an owner. So I don't know whether he meant just in general or if he meant during an interview process. That stuck out to me. Maybe owners don't take as much of a hands-on process as Jim Crane does here in Houston. I think he felt that was very meaningful in the interview process that he was actually getting in front of the decision maker. Kind of goes to your point, which is you're not going to make a big deal in this team without Jim Crane signing off on it. Not the least of which and not the least of which we're all anticipating, which is a possible extension of Kyle Tucker. Well, I know if I owned a multi-billion dollar enterprise, uh, I'd be involved in every major decision or at least uh, make sure my voice was heard or information had gotten to my ear before it was executed, whether it's a $200 million contract extension or, or a mega trade. And where the Astros are just in terms of their hierarchy, Jeff Bagwell obviously is Crane's ear. Uh, the Reggie Jackson relationship is kind of curious. It started out with a charity endeavor. 
mean, really, you think Reggie Jackson could name one Astros minor leaguer? Um, you Hunter know, Brown. If, if they, <laughs> they get audiences and, and so forth. But the Astros don't have a president of baseball operations. Right. So if Jeff Luno had still been here and moved up from general manager, he actually had the title of executive vice president, but he was going to hire someone to run the day to day. Uh, then maybe Jim Crane would not have been integrally involved. If I were Jim Crane, I would still want to be involved in, in a hire of this this level on the uh, managerial flowchart. Um, but Jim Crane's functioning as the president of baseball operations as well as the managing partner. So it was much more directly his hire to make because between, between him and the general manager, there is nobody. No, that's fair. I'm curious to see, as we pointed out earlier, we're so close to pitchers and catchers already getting started. Not a lot of time for Dana Brown to, you know, to, to do a whole lot between now and the start of camp and, and the season. And, and Chandler Rome pointed out in his column uh, with the Chronicle that, that, that that's how it kind of worked with Click. He didn't really make a lot of moves until after he'd completed a season with the team. It was going into that second year where he started adding some scouts and stuff like that. Some, some of the assistant GMs, some of those positions he filled. So I wonder if that'll be the same for Dana if he waits a while to, to get a lay of the land before he starts hiring people. Well, it's nice to be handed the Mona Lisa that you don't need to be thinking, uh, where's the paintbrush so I can start making, making changes. Right? The Astros in terms of their general quality going into 2023, they're on autopilot. Right? They're going to be very good no matter what Dana Brown does this spring. So he'll assess organizational depth and start planning for the, the draft this summer. And in terms of the major league roster, come June, July, if there's a, a move to be made, injuries, decline in performance, whatever. Uh, but Dana Brown at the major league level, maybe they have one bench position still to finish pending Michael Brantley's uh, status. So that's probably the, the only major league personnel call that, that Dana Brown's going to be charged with making uh, before opening day. I will say this is that, you know, you talk about he's, he won't be expected to make major changes on the Mona Lisa, but you're getting the Mona Lisa and the bar has been set of winning a championship. And then if you don't the next year, then what's the one thing that changed? Well, the GM did. So it's like you unintentionally walk into this buzzsaw. Michael Schwab had an interesting quote, and you guys should follow him on Twitter. You probably do. If you're watching an Astros podcast in January, you probably find uh, or follow Michael Schwab. But uh, he said a quote from someone in another front office says about the Dana Brown hires that their championship window just extended for another five to seven years longer. That's That would be, I mean, you're talking about a Braves type of window at that point, right? 90s Braves into the 2000s, yeah. right. 14 consecutive division titles when you take out the strike season of 94. Uh, look, the Astros, forget the dynastic run they're still in the midst of. This is a more have franchise than have not in terms of resources and market size. And, and all of that now has been compounded to the good with this run, right? Their, their sponsorships are up in value. Their broadcast rights aren't up anytime soon. But everything about the Astros is more valuable than it was, which gives them more resources to retool, including, you know, if your farm system's not cranking out Correa and Bregman and Tucker and Jordan in the next three, four years. I'm not saying you go spend $280 million on your major league payroll, but as long as ownership is good with it, you can be very aggressive. We don't know if it's going to work out now for the Texas Rangers, but look at all the spending that they have done the last two off seasons. They also now have one of the top half dozen farm systems in major league baseball. Now, you know, they have five or six of the top 100 relative to the to the Astros one. Uh, the Rangers ran the American League West in the late 90s. 
had their little spurt with back-to-back World Series. Oh, never won one. Came so close, but never won one. There's going to be a time where the Rangers do get good again. Maybe it's as soon as this year if DeGrom stays healthy and their other pitching acquisitions work out. Right? The Seattle Mariners are on the come. Uh, the Angels have question marks galore in terms of health and durability, but they have a, actually an interesting lineup if their pitching is halfway decent for a change. And Oakland right now is a, a complete joke. Now, the Astros are the king of the mountain, so everyone's going to be coming for them. And uh, no dynasty lasts forever. All kings get toppled or die off at, at some point. But there's no reason to think the Astros are going to tumble in the next two, three years. So that's half of Dana Brown's window covered for him. Uh, can the Astros get back to pumping out premium grade again talent? So when we're in 2026, 2027, 2028, and Altuve's 37, 38 years old, and Bregman's moved on or is 34, 35 years old. You still have Jordan. You hope to have Tucker. You'll still have Jeremy Pena. You can control him for another five years. But Dana Brown takes over where, you know, the idea that all he can do is screw it up is silly, but there'll always be the lunatic fringe that views it that way if, if they don't at least get back to the World Series. Yeah, the draft is what excites me about Dana Brown because we know Crane, if they're they're big, big contracts – that stuff's going to go through him. I'm sure Brown will give his input, but we know how Jim rolls in that aspect. But we thought it was possible they may not have a GM this year. So having Dana Brown to be the captain of that draft coming up, a full complement of picks, you know, not waste any year, that certainly could be a big deal. Plus, the Astros, if they stay good like they have been, they're picking at the end of the round, every round. And to have a guy like Dana Brown that's good at finding guys, third, fourth, fifth round – you're going to need somebody that's not just good at, oh, I'll take Bregman at number two overall, or I'll take Correa first. You know, they're going to need somebody that, that can find some guys that, that aren't on everybody's radar. When you especially look at uh, stats like over the seven of the past eight years, the Astros have had representation in the Rookie of the Year candidacy, and two of those times won. When you look at it, especially when you're talking about a team that, you know, has a mix of veterans and rookies and, you know, when you're talking about how sustainable they are going forward, you need cheap help. This is the guy you're talking about, Dana Brown, who can do that for you. This time last week, we were talking about Yuli Gurriel possibly signing with the Marlins. It looked imminent. Now it looks like that's fallen apart. We are hearing that Astros could still be in the mix with that. Uh, I think John Heyman says that the Twins checked in on Yuli. You know, we also saw Chandler Rome say that sources familiar said that Dusty was an advocate for a Chad Pender as an option who takes some of these utility reps. We've also heard internally that there's some desire to get a guy like David Hensley, those utility reps. The longer this stretches out with Yuli, though, is, is, does it become more likely that he returns or less likely that he returns to the team? Hmm. How about it, Josh? <laughs> I think more likely. I don't think it's going to happen, to be clear. But if the number gets to be such a small number, and what, that's what we're hearing is that, that the Twins were, were looking at a, a pretty low ball offer to him, as were the Marlins. If it gets to be to where Yuli's not asking for you know, $6, 7000000 million, it's a small, small deal, and it's only for one year, maybe they decide to do it. You know, and I'm I'm looking here over, you know, at Pinder who you're talking about. 
in, in you know in Rome's column, they talk about somebody that can take a lot of reps at second base and shortstop. He hasn't done a bunch of that. Hardly, yeah. hardly any of it lately. In the last several seasons, most of the time when he's getting in the lineup, it's in the outfield. Which I get it. If Michael Brantley's not ready, they might have a use for that in left field. But if that's the case, he's. It's not like he's. Oh, you could play him at shortstop all the time, or you can't do that with Yuli. It's it's not like that. He would likely, you know, maybe play some corner infield, maybe some second base in some left field. I think Yuli could play some second. Obviously, we know he can play first, and in a pinch, he could play some left field. So, with Pender, it's looking like a pretty small deal for him. And and they upgraded. They went ahead and got a Ledmus Diaz, and now Pender's a free agent. So. We got a good look at Aledmus Diaz. What we know what he brings to the table. So I just I don't see a point of making a move like this for Chad Pender. I, I, if you're not going to roll with Yuli, I'm fine going with some of the guys that are on the on the roster. Some guys that still have options. You can move them around. You know, back to the minors, back up. I, I think that's the route they'll end up going. Let's channel a little Ty Webb. Chad Pender, you're not um, you're not um, you're not good. Just because you play a bunch of positions doesn't mean you're necessarily good at any of them. It's like a, a really, really light-hitting shortstop. Oh, he must have a great glove. No, maybe he's just not very talented. Uh, Chad Pinder last had a 300 on-base percentage, I think, in 2018. Master of not all trades, no trades. Jack of several, master of none. I mean, he's 30. He'd probably give you a little more positional flexibility than Yuli because he has played infield, outfield. But they have Mauricio Dubon to do that. Uh, Pinder, I don't know what the dusty hook on that is. Uh, Jerkson Profar is probably the best remaining free agent that if you wanted some, he's a switch hitter, can play infield, outfield. Hasn't played shortstop now in years. I wouldn't be counting on that, but was once the number one prospect in all the minor leagues which tells you about prospects, uh, but coming off a solid season uh, with San Diego, again, a switch hitter. If you're looking to take some of the at-bats against left-handed pitching, uh, against right-handed pitching with, with Chad McCormick uh, covering it for sure against lefties and against some righties. So Pender doesn't excite me at all. I would be wary with Yuli, who understandably wants to go somewhere where we can get regular playing time. Well, then the Astros should be off his list. I mean, everyday playing time. Uh, the Marlins, other than the Cuban connection, South Beach, I'm not sure what the appeal would be there. And now that the Twins have been mentioned, connect a couple of dots. The Marlins-Twins trade last week, sending the good starter Pablo Lopez to the Twins. Minnesota traded the batting champ, Luis Arise, who split his time between second base and first base. So he's going to the Marlins. So there are some at-bats to be had probably at first base right now for the Twins. But the reality is there's a very little Yuli market. He's coming off an awful season. He turns 39 years old in, in May or June. I never remember which one of those spring months. So uh, it's a little bit uh, beggars can't be choosers. So if you'd rather have Yuli at $3 million, I don't want Yuli instead of David Hensley. Uh, David Hensley plays for basically the minimum. He can play shortstop. That's not in play for Yuli if something happens to Jeremy Pena. But if Brantley's not ready, you still have one spot, right? You have your starting eight, quote-unquote, everyday players. If Brantley's not ready to DH, you have your backup catcher, Diaz or Lee. You have Dubon. Do you have Jake Myers? Uh, and then you have one more, Hensley, and then one more spot available. Presuming you're going to carry 13 pitchers, 13 
position players, quote unquote, on the roster. So if Brantley's not going to be ready, you do have that one roster spot to play with. And let's not just hand one to, to Jake Myers. So I get the sentimentality of Yuli, but there are probably a couple of better fits on the roster. But this is an Astros problem, right? The last guy on the roster. Who's it going to be? It's not, oh, no, look at the hole on their roster, Pinder or Profar or Guriel. It could be one of us, and they're going to be just fine. I hope it's one of us. I could uh, definitely me. use that paycheck. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm. I'm not sure what it means. I'm the length of this. You know, the longer it goes, but I think for organizational depth, I'd be happy to see Yuli come back. I guess as this, the more it goes on with me personally, uh, the more Yuli's in the rearview mirror, and I guess I'm more comfortable with him being gone. I'm probably also conditioned by Jim Crane with all the attrition. Uh, to the faces of this core leaving year after year, I'm a little bit more conditioned to let guys go and and maybe look at the bright side, which is Yuli went out on top. Well, Yuli- and they lost great players coming off great years. Yuli, other than Verlander, is older than all of them and coming off a crappy year. So other than La Pina, popular player, and, and here for all six years of this uh, dynasty run, I mean, they moved on without a hiccup from Springer and Cole and Correa and prospectively Verlander, uh, moving on from soon-to-be 39-year-old Yuli Gurriel coming off a negative war season, this is not a crisis. Stats-wise, it's kind of interesting. Yuli's kind of had a a good batting average year, not so good. Next year, good again, then not so good. He's kind of every other year kind of guy, you know, winning the batting title and then having this really poor year as far as batting average this year. So if you were trying to look at the bright side, ooh, maybe <laughs> maybe this is the year where he's good again. But, you know, you can't get caught up in those types of patterns. Eventually, they end or they're just really something to point to. They're, they're not really something that you can count on. If, if they would show a little willingness to play Kyle Tucker some in center field for the Yuli camp, that might open it up a little bit that once Brantley is right, if they're okay with Brantley playing a little right field, right? The bum shoulders, the non-throwing shoulder. So if you have Jordan in left, Tucker in center, Brantley in right, Yuli over the course of his career has not been a big splits guy, meaning it's not like he's destroyed left-handed pitching and merely been pretty good against right-handed pitching. In fact, at times he's had reverse splits. In 2022, where he largely fell off a cliff, he was meaningfully better against lefties. So if you're thinking uh, against certain left-handed pitching you want to get him at bats as opposed to Brantley because you can reconfigure your outfield a little bit but uh, hey if it's Yuli or Chad Pinder then I'm okay with deferring to the people's choice and bringing back Yuli on the cheap I would be a little worried about a 39 year old guy being relegated to part-time duty to to how well he'd take to that along with what does he have left Uh, I'm going to throw an audible here because I like this conversation I'm going to make the uh, bottom line question of the week I want to ask you guys what your favorite uh, Yuli moment is f- uh, from his time in the Astros. You know, I don't want this to be necessarily an obituary for Yuli as an Astro, but if he is gone, this you know, this is a good opportunity to kind of look in retrospect for some, you know, winning two chips here. What's your favorite Yuli moment? You know, he's not a guy I don't think, unless there's a glaring one jumping out. Did he hit one of the tying home runs off Kershaw? Yes, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, so that that's number one for me. I'll, I'll tell you another memorable moment he made a very rare error and mccullers live wire emotional guy kind of showed him up you know the oh, geez my defense what do you do? 
And Altuve called out McCullers, hey, 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 you know, it's not like he made a mental error. That's not how we handle business. Um, and obviously there were no ill feelings that lasted from it. Just from one that sticks out in my mind, that that is one. But the the Homer off Kershaw in game in game five, that's that's the the biggest individual hitting moment that comes to mind. Yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at too, Brandon. The, the shot in the Crawford boxes off of Kershaw. But I mean, you could also just kind of put it all in his incredible f- performance this whole postseason. He was fantastic in the postseason. So I'll put his uh, his playoff run in 2022. When I think of iconic uh, Yuli moments, I think of the Kershaw home run, the game time home run, uh, because, you know, it had come in that series. He had received a lot of heat for some racially insensitive acts in the, the dugout regarding you Darvish. So there was a lot of negative press surrounding him. I, I, a person with lesser uh, mental fortitude could have let that bother them and crack them in that moment. It, it almost felt like a, uh, a sense of relief, a weight lifted off his shoulder when he hit that home run, just to know that I'm not an anchor bringing down my team with controversy in a, in a big moment. And I saw a little bit of that swagger return to him in the uh, playoff run subsequently last year. And again, like if he doesn't come back, then it's not the worst thing in the world to go out on top. Not at all. And, and just one other team, not linked to him at all. And, and the Diamondbacks have Christian Walker, a, a real home run hitting bomber at, at first base. But it would be a pretty cool family story if, if Yuli got to finish playing alongside his kid brother. Uh, Lourdes dealt from Toronto to Arizona in the Dalton Varsho trade, but that does not look to be in the offing. Indeed. No, it, it's funny you bring that up. Remember when they signed Yuli originally, a lot of people thought they were doing it to get his brother, yeah. you know, and that was obviously not the case at all. Yuli turned out to be a, a terrific signing, helped you win two championships. And we talk about that legacy of uh, Astros players finishing in the top five for uh, rookie of the year voting. He was a different type of rookie, but in 2017, Guriel finished fourth. But uh, Yuli Guriel, certainly a centerpiece or tentpole for this organization. And, and a significant moment when they signed him, right? They made the wild card in 2015, then would take a, a slight step back, 84 and 78, missed the playoffs. The last time they missed the playoffs, uh, 2016. But when it came down, maybe June, somewhere. Five years, forty-seven and a half million for Yuli Gurriel. The Astros? Whoa! Uh, that at that time, it's not like it was one of the bigger contracts in baseball, but that was stepping out money and uh, running up the flagpole with clarity that okay, the Astros are serious now, adding a veteran player, outbidding the market for him at thirty-three years of age. Joined the big league club a couple of months later, and it was a struggle. But I was just getting his feet wet, you know, acclimatizing to a new country, much less a new ball club and all that. And then the, the six full seasons, well, five seasons plus the COVID season of 2020 that followed. I had one thing I wanted to share. It's not really on the rundown, but I thought it was funny. It's been kind of talked about a little bit. But over the weekend, uh, Justin Verlander receives his Cy Young Award. They, uh, I think, misspelled uh, valuable as valuable there. Personally, I can understand how that happens. This is a promo piece of and I've covered up the logo, so we're, we're protected here. But this is a piece of promo that was clearly it missed the QC a couple of times and got printed uh, one team Vizen for those that are uh, listening on the audio version of the podcast. So, hey, I can relate. Sometimes things slip through the cracks. How many levels of check happen? 
for an award that's given out every year. They don't they don't have a template, the mold to do the font of valuable. You think uh, Verlander is not really much of a trash talker that they, they were trying to give him most valuable player. Now that might be Joe Kelly. Right. Well, definitely Joe Kelly. And I can tell you somebody that edits people's stories for a living. Uh, a lot of the younger generation, not a fan of the spell check guys. <laughs> so this does not surprise me very much because they, they keep me on my toes. That's for sure. You're saying Grammarly is your friend, right? Yes. And I guess in this instance, there is nothing more valuable than a proofreader as it goes. And that's the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. So, hey, everybody that's watching us and interacted with the show, thank you so much. For Charlie, Josh, I'm Brandon. Thank you so much. Go Strohs.